This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. Fred Burton is a former police officer, former Diplomatic Security Service Special Agent with the Department of State, and he has become a New York Times bestselling author for the multiple nonfiction books he has authored that all really seem to have at their root a mystery. Some of them, quite obviously, like he wrote Under Fire, which is the untold story of the attack in Benghazi. He wrote uh, Beirut Rules, which is about the abduction, torture, and death killing of CIA Station Chief Bill Buckley in, um, in obviously, in Beirut. Uh, he even wrote a book about the assassination of an Israeli colonel in Fred's hometown that had kind of dogged Fred throughout his life. And of course, Fred's written his own memoir, Ghost, The Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent, which I found to be an incredibly compelling, fascinating read to really learn and fully appreciate the kind of nascent counterterror capabilities in the U.S. government far predating 9-11, but without wit, if you don't understand the stuff Fred is talking about, you lose a lot of context for where America was when 9-11 happened and for the GWAT that followed. Um, so I think Fred's books are incredibly important in a geopolitical and historical sense, and I also think they're just fucking interesting because he's writing about stuff that is so damn cool um, and important to know about. When I sat down to talk with Fred, though, uh, we didn't have a ton of time, but we had enough to really dive into uh, kind of the heart of what I wanted to talk about with Fred. What I really appreciated, though, is Fred's, I, you know, this, the juxtaposition of being such a humble, uh, kind man, but with such a dogged, obsessive um, focus on righting wrongs, 
and solving these unsolved mysteries. Um, And I'm so heartened to hear he's got a couple of books coming out, which you'll hear a little bit about, get a little sneak preview of. Um, Not sneak preview, that's saying too much. But, you know, get a little heads up about um, in the interview. But I was so thrilled. Uh, I can't wait for his stuff to come out because uh, he's a great writer, incredibly articulate, incredibly straightforward, easy reads that you are page turners. And, uh, but these stories, these nonfiction mysteries that need to be understood, appreciated and solved are really, really compelling. So I couldn't be more happy to have sat down and talked with Fred and you guys are going to enjoy the hell out of this. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer and this is Fred Burton's profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Fred. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really glad to have you on, Fred. Um, so I read Ghost, which is just, for those of you that haven't read it, it's, and I'm going to say this in the intro and, um, you know, throw out all the laurels I can as I intro this episode, but I really such an enjoyable, interesting, interesting book. And especially for people, um, one of the reasons I really want to talk to you is I think you shine light on subjects that I think so many people have forgotten about so much of that drama in the mid eighties and into the nineties um, that really set the precedent for the G Watt and for so much else that happened. You know, let me just start with that 30,000 foot view. Do you sometimes feel like you're providing a real service? historically and providing context for the wars that a lot of us ended up going into and saying, Hey, this is kind of where some of this stuff germinated from. These are kind of some of the puppet masters involved. These are some of the threads that you might want to follow to better understand the context of what you guys did for 20 years. Well, first, Chris, thanks so much for having me. I, I never view the books I write with any kind of, uh, bigger mission for for other than what they are mm. uh, for example uh i've i've recently been donating artifacts and items to the various presidential libraries and things uh that i've come across in the course of my career but uh when i when i look back at that time frame uh it, it's it's almost like a different life uh, mm. I, i've been out of the business so long now that um, you know, it was a long time ago, but at times it seems like yesterday. And I, I think, as you referred to Ghosts, which was my first book, um, I, I get more satisfaction from, for example, last week I, I got a note from a father that said his son uh, is graduating from basic agent training. With the State Department, would you be kind enough to sign a book and send it to him? Uh, and and that's what I enjoy doing. I I've gotten a lot of cards and notes and letters over the years since that book came out of just people joining the organization because they read the story. Mm-hmm. And so 
Um, but I never went into it, Chris, with the this idea of having a bigger picture in play. I I subsequently have written other books where I'm focusing on certain periods of of time, which I think are important from a historical perspective, just simply because I lived through them. I guess that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, and I'm not so sure that I answered your question. <laughs> no, you did. You did. I mean, it was a long-winded question, so it's all good. Uh, no, I think that's. I think that makes a ton of sense. That the history is kind of a second-order effect, um, and you are writing the ghost certainly as a personal story. I do want to get into some of the other books that you've written, also, because um, you do touch on some of that subject matter. William Buckley's death and um, you know, Colonel Allen's death and, and things like that, which are incredibly fascinating. I guess for me, just in reading Ghost, the thing that kept coming to me is maybe my end result, which I was like, boy, this is really valuable context. As much as it might have been written as a personal story, um, I, I think it's, I can't think of a better parallel. So this isn't going to be as as articulate maybe as I'd like it to be, but I feel like a lot of us that spent time in the Middle East, we've been in the museum. We've walked through the hallways. We've seen the paintings. But we don't always have the docent there that's going to tell you about the history of some of these paintings and how we got here. And there, that's a different experience. And I think you shine a light and a very intimate portrait of so many very interesting, cool things that are, and when I say cool, I mean um intellectually interesting or geopolitically interesting uh, facets that I think are worth people knowing about and diving into so that history didn't just start in 2001. And I think that's important for all of us to remember. Um, I want to start though in talking to you, Fred. Um, I want to talk about your father because you mentioned him. You know, you've mentioned him on social. I've seen you know posts you did on him on Instagram. You have a very moving chapter on him at the end of the book and and you mentioned throughout the book uh you reference his time as an mp in world war ii can you just tell everybody a little bit about his military experience and what he saw and what he did in world war ii sure i'd be happy to well you know my my father grew up he was uh in many ways uh a very uneducated man chris uh, he grew up in a uh, coal coal camp in uh, southern West Virginia, where uh, he had no indoor plumbing, and uh, went off uh, to the war, World War II, uh, and and ended up um, as a military policeman. Uh, he also was at Nuremberg for a while, and um, you know after the war came home and kind of bounced around. He he knew he didn't want to go back to the coal mines, which. You know, it, it's hard to even imagine what that life was like. I, I've been back there on several occasions, and it's like Jurassic Park, right? It, you can look at pictures from the 20s and 30s and 40s and see this vibrant coal mm. mining operation where literally the coal camp owned everything from the preacher to the mortician yeah. to the doctor. And they actually paid you in company money. It wasn't U.S. currency. And it it's something to really kind of hard to like wrap your eyes you know your head around and and to see it and then now you see and there's nothing there literally and um so you know i i grew up listening to 
those stories at times, you know, especially if my dad was drinking and, you know, he talked a fair amount about it then, but other than that, he really didn't. And so he ended up, you know, cobbling together enough money to purchase a, uh, a local gas station, which was basically the center of our universe. It was a small business. And, you know, I, I worked there from probably when I was started working there when I was 12, you know, or when we were pumping gas and all my buddies worked there and so forth. And, uh, but, um, so, you know, that generation, they're, they're all leaving now at a rapid pace, yeah, you know, sure. they're all, they're all dying off those that, that are still around, but, you know, um, I, I think that is the kind of of thing when you grow up in that kind of environment. I I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but um, I heard his stories, and I ended up joining our local rescue squad when I was seventeen as a volunteer, sure. and that kind of set me on a on a path towards public safety to some degree. Um, and I just kind of enjoyed that kind of work. I, right. I sometimes look back and think that I would have been just as happy, maybe happier if I had stayed in the, uh, fire rescue service and not have to put up with, uh, all the, all the <laughs> stuff you had to put up with as a cop or as an agent, right? Uh, yeah. life seemed to be a little bit simpler then. Yeah. Well, I want to get into that. Um, but I want to stay with your father for one second. Did he talk about world war II a lot? or at all to you or was it only when he was drinking how often did it even uh, come up it 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 would come up at times when he would tell stories about um you know the nazi camps um it would come up when he would tell stories about um you know how some of the prisoners were executed how you know most of them were hung and so forth and the, the nazi prisoners or the or the yeah the, okay. the nazi wow. prisoners at okay. at nuremberg and so nuremberg. forth but wow. you know he he was at the end of the day like so many from that generation a, a patriot and i think he i think he kind of fled the coal mines knowing that the war at least gave him an out and uh -huh. enabled him to see a different part of the world which he had never ever been exposed to so it's kind of funny. You mentioned I, I came across a, a picture of him with a couple of his buddies in in Germany that um, I'll get around to posting on social media. And it looks like he was just kind of having a good time. Right. Interesting. That, um, yeah. There were kindred spirits there, you know, as, as part of that military police detachment and so forth. So. Did, um, did those experiences, I, I don't know how else to say this, but say, did they kind of linger over your household? I mean, was there a sense of like, was that something that you just, when you were growing up in that household that, hey, dad saw all this, you know, the camps and he saw Nazis up close. Was that, was that something that loomed large in your house or was it kind of an incidental piece of family history? I mean, how, how much did a, of a role did that play in your childhood and your upbringing? Yeah, it's a great question. We actually, um, you know, we lived in a in a two bedroom apartment, um, literally almost right across the street from my, where my dad's gas station was there in Bethesda, Maryland. It was called the Horseshoe. I, I'm sure, you know, in today's, I don't know what the 
proper word is today, but it would probably be viewed as some degree of low income housing today, um, which is, you know, probably all he could afford at the time. And sure. he could walk to work kind of thing. And, you know, black and white TV with an antenna. Mm. And, you know, I remember a TV set with that actually had a, a record player inside it, you know, a black and white TV set. And, and then my dad, if he would, had something to drink, um, you know, on the weekend or whatever, he would just start talking about his his time and start talking about evil and he's seen evil and mm. uh, but it it wasn't something that was discussed every day you know occasionally there would be I mean I vividly recall um, you know him coming home with uh, an autographed photograph of for example Audie Murphy the the decorated war hero from World War II my dad sure. was you know he went on to have a very vibrant Hollywood career. And um, then there was a uh, another, I don't remember his name. There was another customer of my dad that had been on the Bataan death march in the South Pacific. And um, we had kind of standing orders as kids, you know, that when he came in, he was never to pay for his gas, you know, that we were always to not take his money. And I think my dad viewed people like that as as men and women that have served at a higher calling and he wanted to kind of give back to them in some capacity um so it was it was just kind of a fascinating environment because not only did we have you know these politicians that came in and out of the gas station like senator right. frank church that did the church committee uh, Spiro Agnew, the vice president, was right up the street. I, I found a note in my dad's stuff where he actually called. He would call my house. He would call my house looking for my dad uh, over something for his cars. And wow. you know, there was a there was a note. You know, call call Mr. Agnew. And you know, it was just a different, slower period of time in the '60s and the '70s. And and I remember my uncle. Um, who I did not have in my book, but uh, I don't think so. I, I've written several since then, but my uncle was on uh, the USS Mugford at Pearl Harbor. And I remember my dad um, had him working at the office and, and he was another kid that came out of the coal camps of West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And he was actually on the Mugford and watched the Arizona sink. Wow. And, um, my dad would always say he was shell-shocked. That was the term he would always use mm -hmm. for somebody that had what you and I would call today PTSD. Uh, and so my uncle was always, you know, he, he would like to Budweiser every every now and then. And my dad would say, look, he's he deserves that. He saw the Arizona sink. You know, he, he was shell-shocked in the war. And then... Um, uh, so it was incidents like that. And I'll, I'll tell you another story about soldiers. My um, my uncle um, went off to my uncle got an appointment to um, one of the academies. I think it was West Point out of out of West Virginia and chose not to go enlisted instead and ended up being a Green Beret in Vietnam. and. Um, I, this would have to be 65, 66, maybe wow. time period, 67. Yeah. 
and the war really, really messed him up. I mean, he 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 came home. He he had you know alcohol problem, drug usage, and and you know my father took him in, and I remember him, you know, sleeping on our couch in our two bedroom apartment in this little area, you know, yeah. working at my dad's gas station. And so my my dad always had a soft heart for those kinds of people. And so that that's to answer your question, what what kind of a guy he was. Well, it seems and one of the themes of Ghost, and it seems like it's borne out by what you're saying about your home life, uh, is your sense of black and white, your sense of right and wrong that was kind of indelibly imprinted in your character and then how that fits or doesn't fit with the life that you had chosen. And I want to ask you about that. You already alluded to it a little bit about the rescue service and about, you know, it was nice to do that work. It's straightforward, honest, heroic work. And can you talk a little bit about the differences between being a cop and an intelligence professional? Because I think that's a, a line that a lot of people don't fully appreciate. Yeah, that's a great question. I uh, I struggled with that transition. You know, I had a old crusty sergeant when I was a cop in Montgomery County, Maryland, that kind of pulled me aside and said, Fred, do you really want to be doing this when you're 50? At the time, I was, what, I don't remember, in my 20s. And and he said, you should think about the federal service. And I I had a, um, I had a deal, you know, to park my cruiser in the parking lot of, a, of an apartment complex. And uh, I think I was paying $250 a month rent just so I could keep my marked car there to keep the, the local thieves from going through the neighborhood. But wow. Um, on my way home, uh, I knew that there were these agents that protected somebody in this very nice neighborhood where I couldn't afford to live, obviously. But um, so I just swung by there one day and I I started chatting with them. I said, what exactly do you guys do? And, you know, who are you protecting here? And they said, oh, well, we're protecting the secretary of state. And I said, wow, are you guys like Secret Service agents? They go, no, we're State Department agents. And I said. Wow, I've never heard of you guys. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a lot of people don't know what we are or who we are or what we do. And in those days, pre-cell phone, pre-internet, yeah, you had to kind of like just call around. So when I transitioned, I eventually applied and was accepted. Uh, I think just out of sheer luck. Uh, to I remember the screening process, and I remember going through these strange interviews and being asked questions that I'm not so sure I knew the answer to. And, you know, this was on in the heyday of terrorism was really, you know, we were losing badly on the whatever you wanted to call it during the time frame in the 80s. And the State Department was hiring a bunch of agents. So um, when I transitioned from my patrol car, where I was running burglary calls and right. automobile accidents and ticketing abandoned autos, you know, I, I go off and end up in State Department special agent training and initially get assigned to this counterterrorism unit right out of training. And, you know, still to this day, I don't know exactly why I, I, I was. And it was, you know, you go from literally not having a grasp of the world. I, I was not worldly. I 
I'd never really had traveled far. I had no foreign languages. Um, I was a cop. I, I'd seen enough tragedy in the years as a rescue squad and as a cop to knew that, you know, violent deaths were kind of the norm in this business. But um, now I'm in this position where you're dealing with this highly classified environment where you're reading documents from top secret and above on down. And you've got this world out there that I call the dark world where it's like the average person has no idea and did have no idea in those days as to what was going on. You know, I didn't, you know, and it's almost like we were living in a parallel universe, right? It's, it's like an episode of the old TV series fringe. um, And uh, where, you know, everybody's going about their day and then outside in this world, you've got all these threats which are just like nonstop. And in those days, it was very much a manual world. It was a teletype world. It was telegrams. It was cable traffic. It was, you know, we typed our own reports on a, on a typewriter. We had no computers. And yeah. so everything was just very, very slow and manual. But then you would get a flash message in, which is literally called a flash message. And it would be like a bombing or a murder or assassination. I, I can remember early on in my career, probably within the first month, I was standing in my unit we had our command center right down the hallway. It was it was called Foghorn. And they called down to our unit and said, hey, we got a message you need to see. And I remember walking down the hall and picking it up and reading it on my walk back. And it was uh, a hijacking somewhere, which were endless during that time period. And um, I'm standing there. I'm reading it. My old boss, Steve Gleason, comes in, who turned out to be a wonderful mentor. Uh, but scared the hell out of me early on. And Steve's smoking, got a cigarette in his dangling out of his mouth. And he goes, what's going on? I can't repeat exactly what he said, but you can imagine like what the, you know, what's going yeah. on. Yeah. And I said, well, we got a hijacking somewhere in Karachi, I think. He looked at me, he goes, well, what in the hell are you doing about it? And I'm thinking, I have no idea what to do about it. And and that's just the kind of world we were living in, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, did you know, Fred, as a, as, when you applied for the State Department, did you think it was just going to be a federal law enforcement job? Did you think you were going to get into the intelligence world? Did you think that, that was a, a part of it? Like, when did you get hip to the full spectrum of what this job was going to entail? You know, Chris, I, I literally had no idea. Um, I knew, uh, you know, you got your typical mailed pamphlets of what exactly – the job was, but it was, it was very, you know, sketchy, meaning, okay, we provide security for embassies and consulates around the world. We protect foreign dignitaries. We do counterterrorism, anti-terrorism. We do passport and visa fraud. And there was like a picture of, you know, some old detail from the 1970s protecting some queen or king. Right. And so you just kind of think, well, okay, I quite frankly, I never thought I'd get hired, right? <laughs> and then then once I got hired, you know, you go through all the it was great training. You know, I have to admit it was fun training. Um, you know, the crash and bang courses, they taught you how to shoot very well. Um, you know, you, you got you had a in those days we carried the Smith and Wesson model nineteen and 
our go-to uh, shoulder weapon was the Uzi. We spent a lot of time, you know, on the Uzi and on the Model 19. And and then you just really don't know until you get thrown into the job. And I remember in my class, you know, a bunch of our agents were obviously viewed as the new folks and they were sent to the Secretary of State's protection detail. I don't remember if you could request your assignments or not. I I think it was just the luck of the draw. And some in those days actually went on to be diplomatic couriers, which was really kind mm. of a cool job. A lot of people still don't know what they do, but at the time it was a pretty neat job. I remember it paid very well, a lot of overtime. And um, then others were just sent to our New York field office, our Washington field office, Miami, San Francisco, Los Angeles. And I was assigned to our counterterrorism branch, me and uh, another one of my colleagues from my basic agent training, uh, John Mullen, who was a former DEA agent. And um, I was young. I mean, I I was really, really green, uh, but I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I really didn't know for a long period of time. And, you know, I, I'll be brutally candid with you. You know, I, I went out on many cases and really had no idea what I was doing, just trying to figure it out along the way and uh, um, did the best I could. You, it's funny. Um, reading the book, you know, it seems like a lot of the CT Bureau's jobs were analytical and uh, and um, dealing with deconfliction, dealing with, you know, uh, being a node of information to disseminate out to the different RSOs and the different embassies and things like that. But yet you're a real Swiss army knife because then there's the protective details and then you're still going out on those. So you still, and you're still going and meeting with sources, uh, whether it's stateside, whether it's overseas, you're, and then you're going and doing investigations. So it was one of these, um, to me, I, I, I don't know that there's very much literature out there, nonfiction literature about DSS. But to me, it was such a fascinating exploration of a job that has elements of almost all the rest of the alphabet soup agencies, all just in one agency. Is that a fair way of looking at DSS? It, it is. Now, it's changed a lot. I mean, I've, I, I still uh, am extraordinarily proud of my service time there. I I've written a lot about the organization since my days there, and the organization has certainly changed. But at the time I was there, the the FBI had very limited footprint overseas. Uh, the, and we, the, the term regional security officer, which today there's one at every U.S. embassy and consulate in, in, in the world, in those days there wasn't. So you literally had a regional security officer, gotcha. let's say, that would be stationed in Pretoria that would cover a lot of Africa uh, or Panama that would cover Central and Latin America. And they were like smoke jumpers, right? So mm -hmm. our job, our job in many ways, we were making up the rules, right? And so we would see an attack on an American or didn't necessarily have to be an American. If, if we saw an attack somewhere, we thought we could help or learn something about it. We would literally call that regional security office at the time or send a message and say, you know, DSCRCT is offering investigative assistance. And they would come back and say, well, who the hell is DSCRCT? <laughs> we would have to explain what we did. 
And if yeah. you're that RSO in the field and you've got somebody offering you help, you're going to take it because for the most part, you're a one person show. Wow. And then I would fly off and, and do those investigations. I mean, I remember in one case, I flew off to Madrid. Uh, this had to be in 87 or maybe or 88. And our embassy had been rocketed by the, the Japanese Red Army. Somebody had set a mortar on the adjacent roof and lobbed it, almost went through a window, and it would have been devastating if it hit. And um, we had had a previous attack on the U.S. ambassador's, US ambassador's residence in Jakarta, Indonesia. And so, you know, it was, didn't take rocket science to connect the dots, yeah. the mortar attack, JRA, suspected terrorist, and and so you just fly out by yourself, and uh, the regional security officer arranged meetings for me to meet with the Spanish National Police. And then I went to see the crime scene, and I've got my Polaroid camera, and I'm taking pictures. And we went to the Spanish National Police, and they had the launch device there. And I'm taking pictures of it. I'm sketching it, you know, in my 8 by 10 notebook and writing up an investigative report and sending it back. So it, you know. I've explained this like when I teach terrorism courses or I talk about this, there wasn't a, a big difference in just being kind of like a detective in a in a police department. Mm -hmm. And I kind of viewed myself as that when we went out on these cases. I I didn't view myself as some secret James Bond that was, right. you know, there to save the world. I'm there to say, you know, what happened? Does anybody have any suspects? And, you know, the biggest thing that I also learned, which was quite eye-opening for me, Chris, is especially during that time period was, you know, when you're a cop or a fireman and you call for assistance or mutual aid, um, you're going to get a lot of help. You're going to get yeah. a lot of people to help you. And in the international <laughs> space, you you very quickly learn that there are no friendly intelligence services, that yeah. that these services would do half-baked investigations, or they would lie, or they would withhold evidence, or they would sweep up the crime scene, even when they know you were coming. And, you know, and nobody sometimes even to... Sometimes even American intelligence agencies. Oh, yeah. Too, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, we talked about going right. to Islamabad after President Zia's plane went down, and CIA's being very cagey with you about, yeah. you know, sharing yeah. information, right? Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that's a perfect example of... of even though you might think you know what's going on, there was always these layers upon layers of it, it was almost like someone else was controlling the scenarios. And I, I'll give you an example of this. I, I tend to talk in stories, and I apologize for that, Chris. No, but I don't know. We would always deploy. One of the things that I did during my time period as a counterterrorism agent was I was handling most of the debriefings of the hostages that were held in Lebanon. We were namely looking for Bill Buckley, the CIA station yeah. chief that had been kidnapped in 84. And we would always deploy before there was public knowledge of the hostage being released. And before we would even have knowledge that the hostage was being released, even though I was on the team saddled to find and locate the hostages. And so I remember not being the sharpest knife in the drawer. This was probably circa 1986 or so. And there was like three of us on this uh, 
U.S. Air Force SAM flight, special air mission flight being deployed over to, to Rhine, Maine to go to Wiesbaden, Germany, await the hostage that would be coming in from Beirut. And I wandered up. To, we had a great boss at the agency, CIA, that was running the hostage location task force. And let's call him Bob. And I wandered up and I sat down next to Bob and I said, hey, Bob, I got I to gotta ask you a question. You know, this is like the third trip. And why are we always being deployed before we know a hostage is coming out? And he kind of looked at me and he said, because someone has said, someone has decided that we don't have a need to know. And I said, well, Bob, we're, we're like looking for the hostages. We're going to be debriefing the hostages. What do you mean we don't have a need to know? Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, well, you know, there are just some secrets that I guess someone has decided that we don't have a need to know. So I kind of wandered back to my seat and ate my uh, cold uh, chicken, courtesy of the U.S. Air Force in the box, and and um, went about our business. So, well, it's de- it's definitely one of the more. I mean, there's many moving, riveting chapters in the book, but that's definitely one. When you're talking about the debriefings of Father Jenko, and um, and then talking about Bill Buckley and how all that went down, and obviously that, I mean. Spoiler alert. I mean, obviously that unspools into the Iran-Contra affair, um, which I, you know, remember as a kid, that was the first major government scandal I knew as a kid. And I remember writing something about it in like second grade, like saying eh, in, a, in second grade, a second grader trying to understand the Iran-Contra affair. But what I think you bring to light, you know, and I think it's something that's really, really interesting is the moral complexity of it that you hear these gut-wrenching stories about father Jenko being tortured and what bill buckley went through and you hear that it was that that's what pivoted reagan to say okay hey we got do whatever we got to do to get these guys out and this one tack toward let's call it humanity actually ends up, as you say, good intentions gone wrong and ends up resulting in this very um, convoluted and unethical grab all to get to get our, our hostages out by giving Iran weapons and, and helping them in their war against Iraq and, and all the rest of it. And you talked about it in the book about that conflicting with your sense of, of black and white and right and wrong, and that it was complicated that you're like you're weighing the two of them i'm just wondering now sitting here now and now a couple of years even after you've written the book do you have any greater clarity on the iran contra affair on where that should sit if you had to teach it to school kids what's the lesson learned i mean what what do you think is the takeaway about the iran contra affair now sitting here with the benefit of hindsight yeah that's a very good question and and one that i have to say chris i've never been asked and i I think that on a practical level, I talked to enough hostages, not only from uh, Lebanon, but on aircraft hijackings and elsewhere, that I know this, and family members, that if you are held hostage or your loved one or your dad or brother or sister or daughter or, or son is held hostage, that you don't care what the government is doing to get their release. You just want that that hostage brought home. And 
in many ways, I've grown to accept that in that the we were struggling with finding the hostages. It, it's really a great question. It's a complex question because we literally had no intelligence as to the location of the hostages. Yeah. Meaning, if you go back to the 1983 embassy bombing, which took out the CIA's eyes and ears there, Bill Buckley goes in, then he's kidnapped himself. Brilliant on the part of the Islamic Jihad organization, Hezbollah, Iran. Brilliant. The complexity for us was that we literally had no idea, nor did we have any human intelligence or technical intelligence as to where the hostages were located on any given day. It's hard to believe in this day and age with the U.S. war on terror that has changed drastically since 9-11, but terrorism just simply wasn't a priority, so national priority. So you had no intelligence. So what other avenues are there out there to try to learn or get these hostages out of captivity, namely the CIA station chief, which you can only imagine if that same scenario unfolded today with our 24 by 7 news, our endless social media, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh, and here you have the the senior most intelligence officer in a country at war where all terrorism is emanating out of is missing (laughs) and the u.s intelligence can't find them i mean so at the end of the day it was an extraordinarily bad intelligence failure on us so the powers to be at the nsc whether it be admiral poindexter uh dewey claridge at the cia god rest his soul who's since passed away uh colonel oliver north they were coming up with alternative plans to try to get these hostages out now one could argue that does it make sense to cut a deal with the evil empire Iran at the time? But I can tell you here that at that moment in time, we had no high degree of specificity that Iran was directly involved with the hostage takings. We would sit around at the CIA hostage location task force, Chris, and say, okay, who is Islamic Jihad? Well, you know, we're not really sure. We think it's Hezbollah. Well, do we have evidence of that? Not really. Well, if it's Hezbollah, then maybe there's an Iranian connection. So it wasn't, though, for a long period of time, we had no smoking gun to pinpoint and say that Iran was behind this. And so, you know, do I blame uh, North and Poindexter and and Dewey for doing what they did. Not really. I think they were just coming up with alternative ideas when we were stymied and, and, and had no luck. I'll let others argue the geopolitics of that. Um, sure. I know this, that if we could have traded a missile to get Bill Buckley back, so be it. And if you're Bill Buckley, um, you know, our mission was to get him home and we failed and we failed miserably. And, um, you know, we should have done more. Uh, we certainly tried, but, um, you know, that was one of my motivations for wanting to write Beirut rules, uh, you know, was to shine some transparency into that time period for uh, history's sake as to exactly how bad it was for us but more importantly, how bad it was for 
bill and the hostages that were held by Hezbollah and ultimately Iran. One of the themes I kept noticing in the book, um, and maybe theme might even be too strong a word, because I, I feel like it might even just been your the breadcrumbs that you would leave as you would follow the evidence, but everything kept coming back to Russia and Iran. And I've posited this theory myself, but I want to bounce it off you. Is it safe to say, and obviously granular details have changed. There's been a lot of years since the events that you were writing about. But in my experience as well, I felt like there was, no matter how regional the incident, there were almost always threads back to one of the major geopolitical enemies, that there was almost this Dr. Moriarty, Sherlock Holmes dynamic where, ah, you just follow the breadcrumbs enough and you know something? Yep, Russia is behind that and Iran is behind that. Nowadays, China, yeah, is behind that or you know, one of their proxies is operating. And it seemed like that's what you were picking up on as early as the 80s, um, certainly with the terrorism threads, that whether it was the presidency of plane crash, there's plausible reasons to look at Russia. Whether it was, you know, Iran Contra and Hezbollah and the ties there and all the different jihadist organizations that were popping up. It's like, yeah, this was all Iran. Do you think, um, am I reading too much into that or is that a fair assessment of how we should be looking at threats in the world? Is following the evidence, sure, but being prepared to go, you know, a lot of this stuff is going to geminate from the same bad actors to begin with and will might just unspool out through different organizations and fronts, but it's all pretty much coming from the same bad guys. Yeah, I think that's a very insightful observation. And from an analytical perspective, I, I, I think you're spot on, meaning it took us a while to follow the breadcrumbs and connect the dots back to Iran for the bombings of our embassies, for the kidnapping of Bill Buckley, uh, as well as it took a while for it to come out that the old Soviet Union and the KGB was responsible for training the likes of, you know, the old radical groups from the 70s, like the Black September Organization, Italian Red Brigades, Japanese Red Army, uh, the Bader Meinhof Gang. And even, for example, here in the continent of the United States, the, uh, the Cleaver faction of the Black Panther Party, uh, you know, they were always being funded and trained and supported by the Soviet Union. And mm -hmm. if you sit back and you think about it from a, a, a strategic perspective, a dysfunctional United States uh, is, is good for our adversaries at a strategic level, most notably in those days on my watch was Russia and Iran. China really, really wasn't a factor right. on my watch. Um, it was always Russia or it was always Iran. And so, you know, their support for these asymmetrical groups as they start to emerge, it took years for us to get clarity. It, it took the fall of the wall. And but I can tell you, and, and, and when I talk to veterans groups or I do speeches, Chris, that, you know, the world did not start on 9-11. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, it took 9-11 to, to wake up at least our country to this uh, global threat. It, it, we were living it in that moment in the 80s. And, you know, the, the amount of carnage that we, we lived through from embassy bombings to hijackings to kidnappings to murders, 
it, you know, it was almost like the frog in the boiling pot, right? Yeah. Like, why did we let it get so bad? And, um, but at your, to, to answer your question, there were always, if you kept pulling the strings, you would always find some degree of Soviet Union slash Russian hand in something. And then on the terrorism perspective, Iran and other variants of the same ilk, such in those days, uh, you know, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. And, you know, Gaddafi in Libya and Saddam Hussein in Iraq, who was a state sponsor of terror, uh, was pulling these strings and just creating chaos for us all around the world. You talk about it briefly in the book, um, and I just want to ask you now, when 9-11 happened, obviously you'd had these moments, um, giving away a little bit of the book, but you knew you had these moments personally where you're like, hey, I need to step out for my family's sake. This is becoming an all-consuming job and all that. But when 9-11 happens, would, did you have any sense that this is going to trigger the, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this, kind of the climactic end-all, be-all fight that you had been fighting in the shadows for so long that it was like, oh man, I know I stepped out of this, but was there a temptation to come back in? Was there a temptation to go, hey, this is kind of what we we're all waiting for is now suddenly terror is front and center. It's a headline grabbing event. We can get, there's funding, there's focus, there's determination. Did Was there any of that? Was that at all appealing? Was that a thought to you at that point? Or had you really moved on personally and professionally at that point? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I've had over the course of years opportunities to go back. And um, I, I think you can't fight that last war, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning... When 9-11 happened, um, I was not surprised. Um, I think tragedy forces change. We've all been in the government or in the military. It does take tragedy to force bureaucratic change. I've seen that my entire life and career and done enough after-action investigations to note that sometimes it does take those catastrophic events for people to force change. I, I think I was very fortunate in many ways, Chris, to be assigned at that moment in history to a small group that was making up the rules as we were going along, whether it was mm. the creation of the Rewards for Justice program, the $20 million for Bin Laden, the counter-surveillance program we developed in support of the protection of high-level government officials to the investigation of terrorism around the world. I Today, I think it's too complex. I think that there's so many different people involved in these cases. I, I mean, we had, there was no DHS fusion centers on my watch. We had mm-hmm. less than five joint terrorism task forces around the country. And I think only one really was functional, which was in New York. Mm-hmm. And and so for me, I, I, I don't, I'm not so sure I would have operated very well in that very structured uh. environment uh. that, um, 
you know, now you've got 25 people to go out and investigate this incident. Um, I'm not saying it, that's not more efficient, not better. Sure. But, you know, I, I don't think I would want to, to have done that. Yeah. And so in, in many ways, I think I'm, and, and I've told many of my colleagues from my old organization is this, I'm, I'm much more effective now outside of the organization, <laughs> writing about their successes, writing about honestly their failures, um, being a messenger and and help promote their org as best I possibly can and the very complicated mission that they have. Uh, so I look back on my time and, and feel very blessed in many ways to have been thrown into that. But quite frankly, I was probably not very good at it during that time period and learned a lot of hard lessons along the way. But isn't that what life's about? <laughs> well, I can't let that go uncommented on. I mean, you, for somebody that was helping dev out those initial steps, you know, and you said it's kind of, it was kind of the Wild West then. I mean, there was no precedent for what you all were doing at that time. Um, there, you had one line in your book. I think at some point where somebody says, Hey, I know your reputation, uh, just tread easily here. And I just want to ask you, what was your reputation at DSS? Well, I think it all depends on who you ask, right? <laughs> uh, I, I think in, in many ways, uh, I've been redeemed and uh, kind of viewed uh, very favorably today, I would like to think. Uh, maybe it's just I've grown old and gotten a little wiser, but. I think in in those days we were very we were very territorial we were very turf conscious we were very aggressive we could be very abrasive and offensive uh, we felt that we had a mission to do that we thought was important but you know I I attribute a lot of that Chris to my first boss, Steve, Steve Gleason, who I'm still in touch with. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. And he carried, you know, I, I was fortunate to have stood on the shoulders of giants, right? Mm -hmm. the, these old guys from the Vietnam mm -hmm. days that uh, I mentored under. And, you know, Gleason would always tell me, and he was right. If we don't do something about this, nobody else will. So. To me, it was infuriating when I when I would run into roadblocks or I'd run into bureaucracy because I I just knew that people didn't get it, right? Now maybe I was too laser focused, maybe I was too intense, maybe I was just too young and dumb uh to step back and to take in the wider aperture of things. But um I, I sincerely believe that if we didn't do something if I didn't do something right then and there about this problem that literally nobody else would. Oh, boy, that's a that's a heck of a burden to carry. Um, listen, in a couple of minutes remaining, I, I let me first ask the partisan DSS question. If somebody right now coming out of college, leaving the military, looking at the alphabet soup and wanting to get a job there, to your mind. Why would somebody pick, why should they pick DSS now over, say, FBI or CIA or any of the other agencies? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I get that question a lot from uh, a lot of people, literally weekly. Uh, I, 
I think there's no better federal law enforcement agency in the world. Uh, you know, they're a global police department. They're kind of a global sheriff. You can bounce around different jobs. You can touch on everything from uh, intelligence-related matters to terrorism to criminal investigations to protection. For example, if you go to work at the Secret Service, you're going to be standing in doorways for the, for a long period of time before you really get a lot of responsibility. At state, you can do that uh, for a few months and have a heck of a lot of responsibility. Uh, then if you get tired of doing that, you can bounce over and be a uh, regional security officer in some wonderful place or some hellhole around the world. It kind of evens itself out. If you're interested in counterintelligence, you could do that. So uh, the job um, is so varied today. And I will say this, there is no better job that prepares you for the private sector than mm. the State Department DSS because the job is global. The remit is wide. You have physical security, protection, insider threat, counterintelligence, um, you are well-versed at briefing, at writing, at trying to sell your programs to uh, very senior officials, U.S. ambassadors, both career and appointed. So um, no job in my mind gives you that kind of exposure. Uh, so uh, I'm a big advocate of that. Having said that, if you want to do investigations all your life and you want to stay inside the continental United States, Join ATF or the FBI. Um, if you want to do protection, go to the Secret Service. You know, if you want to do uh, case officer work, try to get into the agency, right? So it all depends on what really you want to do. Um, and my old organization loves veterans because, you know, veterans have been highly trained. They've served. They're highly disciplined. Uh, they, they're used to being deployed around the world in our endless wars. And that goes a long way in our org. And it, it's kind of interesting. And I look back on that time period when I first joined in the 80s, Chris, we had a whole group of old timers that were the Vietnam vets, right? Mm. You know, guys that were there when the U.S. Mm. Embassy in Saigon was breached and overran. Oh. Wow. Um Guys on the helicopter, last helicopter out, right, in 68. Yeah. So uh, veterans uh, have a long and storied history within our organization. So go for it. Brett, I, I would be remiss if I didn't at, at least note under fire um, about Benghazi. And or for that matter, I me, mean, you got your books right behind you. So it's like cheating to look. But I mean, all of your books that you've written have been trying to get to the bottom of mysteries. Is that what drives you now? Is that your fascination is unspooling, unraveling some of these mysteries? I know even on social and in the book, in Ghost, you even alluded to the JFK files and stuff you'd read there. I mean, you're fascinated by mysteries, aren't you? You know, Chris, uh, no one's asked me that question before, so I, I, I would say so. Yes, I, I'm, I'm. At my age now, it's a race against time, right? the The hourglass of time has turned against me. So there's several unsolved things that I don't want to leave hanging. So I'm, I'm feverishly 
looking now and working on a couple other projects just to get to the bottom of them because I know this, Chris, if I don't do it, nobody else will. That's that's heavy stuff. Um, that makes me want to ask, when you're planning these books out, do you have timelines for when we can expect these books that you're working on to hit? Or is it something that you got to wait and see how much evidence you can accumulate and when, you know, how much documentation you can get before you can write them and there's just no way you can apply a deadline to it? Inshallah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I do believe that uh, you'll see a book coming out in late 2023, fingers crossed, and uh, 2024 for sure. So uh, I've got two in the works. Um, one will solve a unsolved mystery, something that's been eating at me forever. Um, the detectives on this will, will probably figure it out. Um, if they keep digging into ghosts. <laughs> uh, the other one, I think folks are going to be surprised. So um, I can leave you, I can leave you with that. Oh man, I can't wait. I can't wait. It's um, it was such a pleasure to read ghost Fred tell every, and, and I, I will read the others. I Benghazi. I was like, that's going to take me down a rabbit hole. And I was like, I've only got an hour with Fred. I can't, if I get into Benghazi, that's it. I, if I read that, I'm going to have too many questions for him. Um, hey, come back, come back though. When, when these other books are out, I'd love to talk to you again about them and give them a proper read and, and chat more about this. My pleasure, Chris. You've been very kind to have me on. And I, I really appreciate the uh, very gracious uh, uh, and complex questions that you've thrown my way. Well, listen, it, it, you begged them. I, I, I can't, I can't not ask them. It was a fascinating reading. Fred, tell everybody where they need to uh, follow you, how they need to follow you, where they should go, website, social, all that stuff. Well, thank you. Uh, well, certainly I'm on social media. I'm at uh, Fred underscore Burton on Twitter, uh, official Fred Burton on Instagram. And then uh, my website is officialfredburton.com. I try to keep that as updated as best I can with like upcoming speaking events and, and so forth. And uh, so I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for having me. And I, I appreciate the very kind words. Oh, listen, it's been a pleasure. And I really, I can't wait till the next time we talk. I cannot wait to see what else you've got in the works too. It sounds really, really cool. Um, so come back, come back and let's talk, do this again soon. You've got a deal, Chris. Thank you. That was Fred Burton's profile in Havoc. I just, I, I, you know, couldn't have been more on more of a buzz after talking with Fred. Uh, so excited. I, I wish, you know, at some point, like I've said this before, at some point we'll do video and you guys can actually see Fred. <laughs> and, and uh, but to see uh, him light up uh, with the ideas of, the stuff he's working on now and about to deliver and publish. Um, I'm excited to see what stories he's dived into and um, what mysteries he is unraveling for us. Uh, I, I really am. I think he's, I think he's just got a lot of cool, really cool stories to unravel. Yeah. Can't wait. Um, I'll say one other thing. Uh, you know, Fred and I talked about it in the interview uh, a little bit 
But I think Fred really touches on something in his personal writing, um, besides his investigative writing and, and unraveling these mysteries. I think there is something that he touches on on the juxtaposition of a law enforcement professional, or even to be fair, sometimes just a military professional's cut and dry assessment of right and wrong, black and white. And when you get into the intelligence world, or what Fred calls the dark world, um, bad things sometimes have to be done for good reasons, and good things sometimes end up having many bad second and third order effects. Um, there's a lot, and that's the gray, right? That's the, that, and I think that's where, um, it's interesting. I, I don't, th- not casting aspersions by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I think I picked up on something when Fred, at the end of the interview, you know, said some of the effect of, you know, not sure I was that good an agent or something like that. Um, I think that's horseshit. I think he sounds like he was a very determined, dogged, um, and uh, sharp agent, but I, I think, um, I think there is something really interesting about, and uh, interesting and disorienting about a law enforcement professional going into, again, using Fred's terms, the dark world, because um, things aren't as cut and dry, and thinking about what's right and what's wrong um, in a given situation gets a lot more complex. And um, it's a different mindset, and I think there's a lot of stories to be told in the reconciling of those two worlds. Anyway, really enjoyed talking to Fred about that. Uh, I, I'm just a big fan of, of his writing and his work and, and, and his, his obsession, the right word, with these mysteries. I just think that's incredibly valuable. So cool to read, and um, I think we're all richer for those stories being out there. Okay, Um, we started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I'd now like to take a second to thank this episode's other sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater, which is, as many of you know, my own nonprofit. So, what is Veterans Repertory Theater? Veterans Repertory Theater, for those that do not already know, and I don't if you would listen to the show at all frequently, you really should know this by now. But if you're a first-timer, Veterans Repertory Theater is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization which provides a platform for current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors, and their immediate family members to create compelling, professional live theater and events. And it's funny, I you know, I always made a point of saying that. I mean, it's our mission statement, and I made a make a point of saying it relatively frequently. Um, I feel like now with the writer strike and uh, now the actor strike uh, for television and film, like it's even more important to have live theater. I think um, I won't go on a long stem winder about AI and the dangers of AI. Um which I think are very feasible and you know I'm I'm not a huge fan of I guess it's you know at this point it's inevitable but 
what what I take comfort in is the fact that you will never be able to replace live actors on a stage. Live performance is still got to be live. You still need flesh and blood doing it. And I don't just say that as a consumer of it and somebody that enjoys watching and being a part of live performances, but I also say that for the rush that the creative artist class both civilian and veteran get from the community that's built in the live performance arts. Um, you know, as we bring veterans into theater more and more or the live performance arts in one way, shape or form, um, it would really suck if all that suddenly just got taken over by AI because you're trying to build a community. Um, and it's an intimate experience to be in a room with people and have these emotional, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Emotional, uh, catharsis is probably a little too much, too strong, but you know, emotional, uh, significant emotional events, let's say, um, through drama or comedy or music or whatever. Um, and there's something bonding and community oriented, which is very cool. Um, and AI is the death of all that. I mean, AI, we just all go back and watch Hulu that's created by AI or Netflix that's created by AI. And, um, and that might be equally entertaining for television or film because so much is CGI anyway and whatever. But man, there's something about the, the, the rawness and the realness of real people in a room performing together and having a uh, communal event that is um, at the risk of sounding really hokey, soulful. And I think that's important. Okay, anyway, uh, trying to make this blurb for Veterans Repertory Theater a little more topical than normal. But anyway, all that is to say, if you want to know more about Veterans Repertory Theater, please go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. While you're there, the best thing probably to do is just go ahead and sign up for our literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. So when you're at vetrep.org, Scroll partway down the homepage and you will see the option to subscribe for free to our mailing list or our literary blog. And that means every day you will receive in your email inbox a brief snippet of veteran writing, usually fiction, poetry, or creative nonfiction. And underneath that in the email will be a host of shameless plugs of whatever stuff we have going on. And we have so much going on. That's the easiest way for us to disseminate all that information to you guys on a regular basis. Okay, so vetrep.org and subscribe to the blog. Okay, I need to thank Mike Neal for producing this episode. As always, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. Um, My thanks again to Fred Burton. And on behalf of everyone at Havoc Journal, we'll see you next time for another Profile in Havoc. (laughs) 